0: Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity to speak again in thy great and holy name. I thank you for each one that is here gathered. I thank you for the young and the older ones that have come to your house tonight to be fed from your table. I ask that you would open our hearts to receive the word and that we might render due praise and adoration of who you are and what you have done. Father, thank you for your word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Hide thy word deep within the recesses of our soul that we might not sin against thee, but that we would enjoy the fellowship and communion that we have with thee through the gift of the Holy Spirit. Father, we ask again that you would send reviving rains upon your vineyard today and that your people would grow in grace and knowledge of thy truth. And it's all for your glory and your honor. And we say, Amen. I've enjoyed the studies we've had together thus far. We've been taking as our theme revival, and I believe that revival is uh, something that is not only corporately enjoyed by God's people, but begins on an individual level. It begins in the heart of each individual. And I pray that God would again visit us in His mercy, and that we would see the fires of devotions altar burning bright. For the benefit of those that have not been able to be with us in the previous two services, I want to back up and try to tie some things together so you don't get lost in what we're doing. Uh, The first two messages uh, that we tried to bring focus on revival in the Old Testament. The first message is from Psalm 85. Please open your Bible there with me, Psalm chapter 85, and I'm going to ask you to read out loud with me verses 6 and 7, but I'd like to begin with verse 4 in Psalm chapter 85. David writes, Turn us, O God, of our salvation, and cause thine anger toward us to cease. Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou draw out thine anger to all generations? Ready? Wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? Show us thy sal- and grant us thy salvation. We tried to bring from this particular portion of God's Word how that revival is inseparably connected to the mercy of God. It is God's mercy that gives salvation, it's God's mercy that gives us the hope of glory. And we need revival. In order to see that glory manifested, not only in the church, but in our own lives. Turn your Bible now to Isaiah 55, please. Isaiah 55. See the connection here to the mercy of God in revival. Isaiah agrees with the psalmist David. And he says, beginning in verse 6, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord, and he will have what? Mercy. He will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. We try to notice in this connection how that Isaiah is talking about the demonstration of mercy that we find in revival, being uh, first seen in the sending of Jesus Christ in the first place to save and rescue sinners. The second is the salvation of sinners. The third is the sanctification involved in the saints of God. I tried to share with you a little uh, poem written by uh, William Cowper. He said, There is a wideness to God's mercy like the wideness of the sea. There is a kindness in His justice that is more than liberty. For the love of God is broader than the measure of man's mind and the heart of the eternal. He is wonderfully kind. God, in His kindness and mercy towards sinners, rescues them. That's what Paul wrote in Titus chapter 3, beginning with verse 5, that after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy hath He saved us, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. That being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It is God's mercy. It is God's mercy demonstrated in the sending of Christ. It is God's mercy in the salvation of penitent sinners. It is God's mercy in the sanctifying influence of the Spirit in the life of the believer. These are elements that are engendered, that grow, if you will, in a season of revival. And without the aid of the Holy Spirit, we know that revival is impossible. Revival is impossible when we consider from a biblical standpoint how that there are so many exhortations in the Old Testament to break up the fallow ground. Fallow ground means unproductive ground, hardened ground, weed infested ground. Did you know that many times our hearts are that way? We become hardened, even to the gospel. We have become hardened to the truth. We become hardened to the things of God. Sometimes trials and tribulations bring a certain degree of hardness into our being, and we begin to experience coldness. We we begin to experience a distance away from God. We don't feel the presence of God as we once did. We don't enjoy the worship of God as we once did. What is the great need then? In those situations, David and Isaiah both agree. The great need is revival. But how does that revival come? What is the nature of true revival? You know, some people say, well, we need to schedule a revival Friday through Sunday, of uh, the third weekend of December. And it's going to go from 7 to 9 o'clock. That's not the kind of reviving I'm talking about. Because the reviving I'm talking about is not something that's scheduled or manipulated or produced by human means. Only God can bring revival. Amen? Only God can produce that kind of revival. I want to share a quote with you from G. Campbell Morgan. He said, we can never organize revival, but we can set our sails to catch the wind from heaven when it comes. I like that. He had an understanding. You can't manipulate God. But what we can do, we can prepare the ground. You know, you ask a farmer, do you believe it's going to rain? He says, yes, I believe it's going to rain. And you ask him, well, did you plow your field? No, I didn't plow my field. Well, did you plant your crop? Did you plant the seed? No, I didn't plant that. Well, then really what you're saying is you don't believe it's going to rain. I talk to people like that and I ask them, do you believe it's going to rain? And they say, yes, it's going to rain. Then where's your umbrella? Did you bring an umbrella to the prayer meeting for rain? You see, many times we are inconsistent in what we say and the actions that follow the words we speak. Actions speak far greater than words. I read a story one time about a famous tightrope walker. He uh, stretched uh, a two-inch cable across the Niagara Falls, and he was uh, drawing quite an attention Because this was a a tremendous acrobat, and he was able to walk across the falls with a big stick in his hand. And, boy, he would walk all the way across, and then he'd walk all the way back. And and crowds began to gather on both sides of the Niagara Falls just to watch this guy because it was fascinating. And then he got a a wheelbarrow, and he took the tire off the wheelbarrow where it just had the rim, and he uh, put a 200-pound sack of sand inside a wheelbarrow. And he took that wheelbarrow, and he walked all the way across to the other side, turned around, walked all the way back. And when he set the wheelbarrow down, he looked at the large crowd that had gathered there, and he asked them this question. He said, Do you believe that I can take a 200-pound weight in this wheelbarrow and walk across the Niagara Falls and walk back safely? Everybody in the crowd said, Yeah, of course, we believe. And then he asked the question, Who then will volunteer to ride in the wheelbarrow? You see, sometimes that's the kind of faith you and I have. We can say we believe, but when it actually means stepping out on the promise of God, stepping out beyond our comfort zone, beyond what is familiar to us, we're shaky on that. We believe in God, but then we don't really believe in God. We say we believe in God, but in actions we actually deny Him. I read another story about a man that was walking one night and uh, he was on a precipice and he didn't realize how close he was to the edge and he actually fell off the precipice and he caught hold of a root that had grown off the side of that cliff that he was hanging from and he began just like you would Lucas he began to say uh, anybody up there help me is anybody up there help me and boy all along he was he was crying out for help to anybody up there that could help him and all of a sudden a big voice came out of heaven and said uh, i'm here to help you he said who are you he said i am god he said well i want you to help me god and god says to the man do you trust me he says oh absolutely you know i've trusted you all these years lord I trust you. I believe in you. I believe in your power. I believe in your uh, provision. I I believe that you are able to save me from this certain destruction. And then the voice said, let go. Let go of the root that you're hanging on to. You know what the man did? He cried out, is anybody else up there that can help me? (laughs) That's the way we talk to God so often in our experience. We... We claim we believe Him. We claim we trust Him. We make the claim that we belong to Him. But when the going gets tough, and when the when, when the heartaches come, I believe that's when we realize we don't trust Him as much as we ought. One of the elements of true revival is a heightened sense of trust in the living God. This morning we tried to direct your attention to... Uh, Isaiah, please just turn turn with me over there real quick. Isaiah chapter 64. Isaiah 64. We noticed something about uh, this chapter, but uh, I just want the first three verses. And uh, I'm going to ask Jessica and Anna particularly, and and Danielle. Well, Andrew wasn't here either. Though. I'm, I'm going to ask you, there is a word in these three verses that is repetitious. There's a word that is going to appear in each one of these three verses. And I want you to tell me what that word is. Here's the prayer of Isaiah. Isaiah 64, verses 1, 2, and 3. Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence. As when the melting fire burneth, the fire causeth the waters to boil, to make thy name known to thine adversaries, that thy nations may tremble at thy presence. When thou didst terrible things which we looked not for, thou camest down, the mountains flowed down at thy presence. I want to ask you, what word appears in all three of those verses? Presence. Did you catch that, Danielle? Presence. Presence. The presence of God. That is what brings revival. Somebody says, well, Brother Jeff, I believe if we get a big band up here and Uh, We we sing uh, uh, all of our contemporary songs, and we hoot and holler and do all of the things that attract a crowd. I believe that's the way to bring revival. But I'm going to tell you something. That kind of revival is short-lived. Well, I think if we get enough pizza to feed half the Gadsden and get enough ice cream and soda pop, we can can build a crowd, and, and that's going to bring revival. Well, if that's what you're going to use, you better hope that you don't run out of pizza and popsicles. Because when you do, you lose your crowd. What truly is the heart cry of God's people is the presence of God. Because the presence of God will also bring the power of God. The power of God will also bring the promises of God into being. And all three of these things together will bring glory to the name of God. Presence, power, and promise. All of them are contingent upon all of them. emphasize all of them embrace the glory that belongs rightly to god himself this morning we looked at one of the examples there's five particular periods of revival in the history of judah and each one of these periods are marked by certain uh characteristics that actually produced revival in judah for a number of years These occurred, of course, under the reign of a man named Solomon, and then later under a man named Hezekiah, later under a man named Asa, later under a man named um, uh, Jehoshaphat, and then Josiah. There's something consistent in every one of those revivals. We found out this morning that they were all ridding the land of idols, ridding the land of idols. I believe that uh, an idol, and believe me, I, I've been to uh, India, I think, 15 or 16 times, maybe more than that, and I've seen idols. I've seen the, the construction of temples that embrace idolatry. They, 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 they make pictures of their gods on the outside of their temples, and they have over 30 million gods in India, and they worship these gods. They are truly idols, but this morning I tried to point out the fact that we can be idolaters just as bad. We can worship ourselves. We can be proud. We can be arrogant, conceited. We can, we can make an idol out of our job. We can make an idol out of sports. I'm confessing my sins here. We can do that. We, we can make an idol out of anything. And an idol is anything that takes glory that rightfully belongs to God. Rightfully belongs to him and him alone. So, what do we find in connection with revival in all five periods of Judah's reviving? We find that they ridded, ridded the land of idols. Um, we found also that they always repaired the altar. They always repaired the altar. Something that I've found even among Christian people today is the forsaking of the prayer altar. We wonder why we lose power. We wonder why we lose the presence of God. We wonder why we can't always see the promises of God. And many times it's a direct result of us forsaking the prayer altar. We have forsaken private prayer. We have forsaken it. That's the greatest hindrance I see in the growth of the church today is we are developing a membership that doesn't know the power of prayer. And uh, people say, well, I'm too busy. You know, you got to realize I get up at 6 o'clock and I work all day or I go to school all day and then I've got this thing going at night and, boy, I come back da- in uh, to the house and I'm tired. I take a shower, go to bed, and I forget. Oh, yeah, right. Uh, this is the kind of praying uh, we get a lot of. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Amen. And I've done my prayer life. That's my prayer. Or like the little three-year-old boy at the supper table said, Can I pray? And everybody said, Oh, yes, you've never prayed before. Go ahead, pray. And he said, he puts his hands together and he says, uh, uh, Look out teeth, look out gums, look out throat, because here it comes. Amen. Do you really think that that kind of praying is going to produce power? It's interesting to me when I study the Old Testament Scripture particularly, how much focus there was on prayer. When you see the great architects of, uh, of the, 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 the Old Testament uh, existence, you, you see people like Daniel, look at how much he prayed. You see men like Nehemiah, look at how much he prayed. Look at David, look at how much they prayed. They devoted themselves to prayer because they knew that they would have no courage, they would have no power to stand before men until they first knelt before God so one of the characteristics in the Old Testament of revival is that there's a repairing of the prayer altar. I read a story one time about a a preacher, by the way, and he was so discouraged and so disgusted, he told his wife one Sunday morning, I'm just not going to church. Well, what are you going to do? I'm going to go hunting. And he decided to go out into the woods and just spend the whole day, and this is the Lord's Day, spend the whole day out hunting. And as he was hunting... He saw a big old grizzly bear. And that big old bear saw and smelled that man, and he started stalking him. He's, he's, and the man started to run. And as he ran, he tripped over a rock in his path, and he lost his gun. And he rolled over and looked up, and there's that big old grizzly bear coming down on top of him. And he just lifted his eyes to heaven, and he says, Lord, I know I've sinned, and I know I'm wrong, but I'm going to ask you one more favor before I die. I want you to make this this bear a Christian bear. And as the story goes, everything just stood still for a moment. No birds were flying, no sound of wind, everything just stood still. And all of a sudden Lucas that bear knelt down and put its paws together, lifted its eyes up to heaven and said, "Father in heaven, thank you for the food that I'm about to eat." <laughs> There's power in true prayer. There's power in the life of a believer that is devoted to the concept of communicating with God. Now, when I'm talking about communicating with God, I'm not just—I'm uh, not talking about looking at God like He's some kind of a genie. You know, the genie in the bottle? We just kind of rub the bottle of prayer. God pops out, and we give Him our three wishes, and after He gives us the three wishes, we ask Him to get back in the bottle, you see. You see, some people look upon prayer in that way, but prayer is actually communicating with God. It's talking to God uh, as our Heavenly Father. It's speaking to God. It's uh, communicating our love for God. Notice how many times the psalmist David says, Lord, I love you. You know, Isn't that a good thing to say? Isn't that a good thing to say? We love you, Lord. Don't be like that husband. One time I was counseling a man and and the wife, after 20 years, she'd come in and she had given up on their marriage because, you know, it was a loveless marriage. And, the Pastor, I'm telling you that this man, uh, he, he just never encourages me. He never speaks kindly to me. He never even says, I love you. He hasn't said, I love you from the day of our marriage. And the man said, Pastor, it's very simple. I told her I loved her when I married her, and I hadn't changed my mind until this day. I don't recommend that. I don't recommend living that way with your wife or your husband. I think we need to communicate love to them. I think we need to say that to our children and our grandchildren. I I think we need to say that to our brothers and sisters in Christ. I love you. I love you. David would say, Lord, I love you. And he would do it in prayer. Lord, I want to live for your glory. Lord, I, I, I use my life in the kingdom work of your Son. Lord, just take my life and let it be wholly consecrated to thee. Speaking to God as though he's real, because he is real. That's my point. And he's never more real tonight than when he comes in revival. In the Old Testament, we have... The ridding of the land of idols, we have, secondly, the repairing of the altars, prayer altars. Third, always attending uh, revival, you will find the spirit of repentance. You'll find repentance in the time of revival. And then fourthly, you'll find returning to the Lord, returning to Him, asking His favor, as we find in the example of King Asa in Second Chronicles, chapter 15 and verse seven. So we find these principles consistent in all the times of revival in the Old Testament. Humbling ourselves, seasons of prayer, uh, amounts, uh, spending uh, significant amounts in God's holy word, uh, repentance, uh, perseverance in seeking God and gathering with others to seek after God, which is so important. Somebody says, well, the church is not important. It's not important for me to be at tr- church. I can serve God just as much as at home as or on the creek bank as I can in the pew. Well, you know, I, I'm not saying that you can't worship God in the home or on the creek But there's a verse in the Scripture that says, Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. And what he's talking about, he's not trying to be cruel to us. He's not trying to be um, vindictive toward us. He's not trying to punish us by making sure we go to the Lord's house every Sunday. He's prescribing for us the path of obedience and submission and fellowship with him. That's the prescription. That's where it comes from. Now, tonight, we're going to make a little transition. We're going to go uh, to the New Testament pattern of revival, and we're going to start in a very unlikely place. Uh, Many of you won't expect this, but I want you to go with me to uh, John's Gospel, chapter 14 tonight. John, chapter 14. I want you to see something with me tonight that I believe is paramount to our understanding of what revival truly is. Are you with me in in uh, John chapter 14, I'm going to back up uh, to verse 15. This is going to be our foundational verse in the New Testament study of revival. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. This, of course, is a key verse to the to five specific blessings that's going to follow. If you love me, keep my commandments. Now, the word keep there is very important. It's a very important word. A lot of people read this and they say, okay, if you love me, obey my commandments. But that's not what the Lord is teaching us. That, that's not what he means by that. When he says keep, uh, that comes from a Greek word that literally means to guard from loss or injury. To observe intently. To meditate upon. See, what he's talking about is not forgetting God's law. Not forgetting what God uses as the standard of right and wrong. See, we're living in a culture today that doesn't understand what's right and wrong anymore. Have you noticed that? Hmm? Have we noticed that in the judicial system? Have we noticed that in the political arena? Have we noticed that in the school districts and local government? People are losing their concept of what's right and wrong. And the reason is, is because they don't love the Lord. If they truly love the Lord, they'll keep His commandments. They'll observe them. They will guard them from loss or injury. They will meditate upon them. They will fear the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. So Jesus says, if you love me, guard my teachings. Guard what I have commanded you. Don't forget it. Guard it. uh, Guard it from loss or from injury. What five things are going to follow? What five blessings are going to follow? Here we go. Blessing number one, supernatural comfort supernatural comforter. Listen to this. Verse 16. I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Stop right there. The word comforter there, parakletos, in the Greek language, which means to come alongside one with of you to rescue or aid. He's talking about the Holy Spirit coming alongside of us and strengthening us and helping us to bear the burdens of life and helping us to endure the afflictions and the tribulations that often beset God's people while they walk in this world. is part of being in this world. And you know, your afflictions, your sorrows, even your weariness tonight, even your tiredness, I'm going to tell you that's the result of living in a fallen world in a fallen body. But the Holy Spirit comes to help us. That's why He calls Him the Comforter. He is the helper. He is the supernatural helper. And he may abide with you forever, verse 17, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. Somebody says, well, all we've got to do is just uh, get everybody a Bible. You know, if we can get every American citizen a Bible, then everybody's going to be saved. Everybody's going to go to heaven. And we're going to live in uh, hallelujah ground on earth. Not so. I'm going to tell you something right now. Without the assistance and aid of the Holy Spirit, your eyes will never see the truth. I don't care how much you read this. It will never mean anything to you. It will never find any application in your life apart from the revelating power of the Holy Spirit. Remember what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. He said, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. Natural eyes can't see it. Natural ears can't hear it. Apart from the Holy Spirit, you can't believe it. Amen? I want you to understand what Jesus is saying. If you love me, keep my commandments. First blessing, supernatural comfort. Second blessing is going to be supernatural life. Listen to what he's saying. Uh, The Holy Spirit, which the world cannot receive, neither can they know Him, but ye know Him. Watch, 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 watch. Ye know Him, for He dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I'm going to tell you that's the life of God in the soul of the believer. Right there. That's how you see, that's how you hear, that's how you believe. It's because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that God gives to His children. He shall be in you. I love that, love that. He shall be in you. I, I will not leave you comfortless as an orphan. I will come to you. This is supernatural life. Yet a little while in the world seeth me no more, but ye see me because I live, ye shall live also. Isn't that a good promise, brothers and sisters? Isn't isn't that a glorious reality? We are alive in Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul could say for me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. That's what he meant. He said, you go ahead and you take this life. You cut off my head. You burn me to stay. It doesn't matter to me because I'm alive. I can't die. This body will die. But that that is redeemed, that that is uh, washed in the blood of Christ is going to live forever and ever. Somebody says this, well, I can't wait to get to heaven so I can begin to live eternal life. Did you know that you begin to live eternally when you're born again? That's why we shouldn't be afraid. We're not afraid of death. We're not afraid of Muslims. We're not afraid of Buddhists. We're not afraid of liberals. We're not af- afraid of politicians. We're not afraid of Obamacare. We're not afraid because we have the life of Christ within us and nothing can take that away. It's supernatural. It's supernatural comfort. It's supernatural life. And I want you to see this. It's supernatural union. Watch verses 20 through 25. At that day ye shall know that I am in in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. That sounds pretty secure to me. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. That's how you know if you love the Lord or not. The reason... There aren't more on-fire Christians for Jesus today is because we're too proud of our sins. We're too proud of our sinful existence to surrender those sins to the sovereignty and the lordship of Jesus Christ. And as long as we're in that condition, we will never experience revival. Never. Jesus is not going to play second fiddle to your whimsical desires or will. Just not going to happen. Listen to this carefully. He that loveth me shall be loved to my Father, and I will love him, and will manifest myself to him. I want you to underline that part of that verse. I will manifest myself to him. I believe that that's a description of revival. The manifestation of God among his people. When you see the spirit of contrition, when you see people truly sorry for sin, sorry for the sin in their life, wanting to repent of their sin, wanting to confess Christ, wanting to follow Christ, when you see... That type of thing happened, and I've seen it many times through the years, and and, and I count it a great blessing when the Holy Spirit comes in such a way as people recognize their own sinfulness and recognize the holiness of God and their need of salvation, their need of a Savior, because they know they're in trouble. Jesus says, "...He that loveth me shall be loved of the Father, and I will love him, and will manifest myself to him." Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot. This is Jude, not Iscariot. Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself to us and not unto the world? Now, that's a good question, isn't it? That's a good question. Why doesn't everybody believe in Jesus? Why doesn't everybody love him? Why doesn't everybody love the truth of the gospel of grace? Why? 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 They were asking the same thing to Jesus. Verse 23 tells you the answer. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him. Do you catch that? What do you call that? That's revival. We will come unto him and make our abode. That means live with him. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings, and the word which he hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. What Jesus is talking about here is is the characteristics of of true revival. It's a supernatural uh, union with God. It's a supernatural communion with God. Then he says, I'm going to tell you something else that you're going to have if you really love me, if you really desire to keep my commandments, I'm going to tell you. You're going to have a supernatural comforter. You're going to have a supernatural life. You're going to have a supernatural union, but you're also going to have a supernatural teacher." Verse 26, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father shall send in my name, he shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. This is the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. Why do you think there's so much biblical ignorance among God's people today? Why do you think there are so many unanswered questions by many of us here tonight? Is it because we have shut out the great teacher? The great teacher is the Holy Spirit. I I believe that in many regards what we have done, and I said we, I'm guilty of this just as much as anybody, we have displaced the truths of the gospel with our own traditions and our own culture, our own cultural perspective, because we think God can't work any other way except the way I know that He works. God can't work any other way in any other life than in the way I have experienced Him. You know, it's kind of like um, Jesus in his healing ministry, you know, he liked to go to the blind men. Have you noticed that, he really has an uh, attraction to the blind people. He goes to the blind people and he heals them. Now, one time he'll use water. One time he'll use oil. One time he uses spit. Believe me. Trust me. Trust me on this. Spit. Yeah, that I know. That is a little bit, uh, but if you were the blind man, it wouldn't bother you. He just took some clay, spit in it, rolled it up, put it on his eyes, told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. He went and washed in the pool of Siloam, and the Bible says that he came back, see, his eyes were complete. So sometimes Jesus would choose to use mud to heal, mud to to bring about a miracle. Sometimes he wouldn't. Now, if those two blind men that were healed were like a lot of us old Baptists today, that would have started two specific associations right away, the Muddite and the anti muddite Baptists. Yeah. See, the truth is, God can do whatever he wants to do, where he wants to do it, with whomsoever he wants to do it, because he's God. We can't stand here and question something or judge something by our own understanding or our own spirit, our own experience, and say there's no way God could ever be glorified in that way or by those people or in that uh, organization. We can't do that. We don't have a right to do that. But I think when you see revival, you're going to have a supernatural teaching that illumines the deep the deep teachings of God's Word, the deep understanding of god's word and then are you taking notes here the fifth thing that we're going to see in these supernatural blessings that follow those that love the lord and keep his commandments is a supernatural peace a supernatural peace he says in verse 27 peace i leave with you my peace i give unto you not as the world gives give i unto you let not your heart be troubled neither let it be afraid when you see the spirit of revival among a people they lose fear they embrace peace. A peace that passeth all understanding. I believe that this is the harbinger chapter of what actual revival is all about. Actual revival is not about your prosperity, your comfort. It's not about uh, your uh, easiness, but it's about God's glory. It's God glorifying Himself through His people and God visiting His people, God dwelling among His people, and the presence of God so powerful that God's people can do nothing more than to fall at his feet and praise him. Now, you're sitting there and you're saying, well, Brother Jeff, is that really something that actually happened? I mean, can you really give me some kind of a biblical view of that happening? I'm glad you asked. Let's go now to Acts chapter 1 and 2. We're not going to, of course, have time to read the whole account, but there's parts of these two chapters that I believe connect very vividly with what we've studied here in john 14 because jesus is going to make his presence known among his people now his people have witnessed his ascension into heaven and sitting down at the throne on high and you can look at this with me in acts chapter 1 you know he he ascends up in the glory and acts chapter 1 uh they asked Jesus. Uh, they asked the Lord a question. Uh, in in, in uh, the, the question I'm talking about is in verse six of Acts chapter one. When they were therefore come together, they asked him, saying, "Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel?" Uh, restoration, revival, renewal—all of those terms are interchangeable because they all indicate. God doing something among His people that they cannot do themselves. They can't produce themselves. So the disciple says, Okay, Lord, you know, you went to the cross, you went to the grave, you rose again, you've, you've, you've manifested yourself for 40 days in, in our presence, and, and now you're you're ascending up into glory. Is this the time of the greatest revival? Wilt thou at this time restore again thy kingdom to Israel? And I believe and you may disagree with me on this, but I I believe that their question revolved around a physical political restoration more than a spiritual uh, kingdom. They were interested in the restoration of Israel as far as a a nation who would overcome Rome. But I want you to understand something. Jesus Christ did not come to defeat the Romans. Jesus didn't come to defeat uh, the governments of men. Jesus didn't come to make bad men good. Jesus Christ came to make dead men live. And I believe that His kingdom is here. In fact, Jesus said, Know ye not that the kingdom of heaven is within you? If the Holy Spirit is within you, friend, if the Word of God is within you, the kingdom of God is there. And I could speak a long time on that. But what I'm just interested in in this uh, question, Wilt thou at this time restore? It could be, Wilt thou at this time revive? Will, wilt thou at this time renew the kingdom to Israel? So they're still in pursuit of revival. And he said unto them in verse 7, He said unto them, It is not for you to know the times of the seasons which the Lord, uh, which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power. In that word power there's dunamis. Uh, that's uh, dynamite. That's speaking of ability or enablement. That's what that term means, power there. But ye shall receive ability. Enablement. You receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me. Now stop right there and kind of circle that word be. You will be witnesses. Somebody says, well, you're going to go out and witness, is what Jesus was saying. But that's not what he was saying. Lucas, he says, uh, you're not going to witness unto all generations. He says, you're going to be my witness. You see, we have to be the people that God called us to be before we can do the work that God called us to do. And the only way we're going to be those kind of people is to be revived. God is going to have to send a powerful anointing in order for us to be the people that He called us to be. Be. We well, are going to be witnesses unto me. And of course, first in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. That's, that's verse 8. If you want a good outline of the whole book of Acts, if you if you want a good outline of how God built the church and established the church and all of the Roman Empire, that verse is it. That's the outline of the entire book. Because if you'll notice, it goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then through the ministry of the Apostle Paul to the uttermost parts of the Roman Empire. And it's all going to happen in less than 30 years without the aid of television, without the aid of the telephone, believe it or not, no iPods, no satellite technology, no electronic uh, ability to communicate the gospel, none of that. Not even, they didn't even, do you understand, they didn't even have the printing press. And yet, in a period of 30 years, all of the Roman Empire, the world that then was, knew about Jesus Christ. They had heard the teachings about Jesus Christ. How did that happen? Well, the key is the promise. Because He said in Luke 24, He says, I want you to tarry in Jerusalem till ye be endued with power from on high. That's what they're waiting for. They're waiting for the promise. Because they know that apart from the Holy Spirit, apart from the gift of God's Spirit among them, apart from the revived altars that He Himself ignites and and, and builds in our lives, we cannot be the people that He called us to be so we can't possibly do what God called us to do. Does it make sense? So here's the promise in verse 8. And uh, now I'll turn over for time's sake. I'd love to talk a little more about that. But for time's sake tonight, I want to go to chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 1, are you with me here? Acts chapter 2, verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. One accord, chapter one, verse 14. These all continued with one accord. Do you know what that Greek word is there? Humophobanon, humphoomedon, and it literally means um, it literally means uh, uh, oneness of uh, uh, spirit, oneness of soul. That's what it means. hummophoomedon. I want y'all to all write that down before you leave the, the sanctuary today. I, w- I want to hear you say humomohamomedon. All night long, I want you to be praying, Lord, give us homo Because homo is what the Spirit of God gives us. He makes us one-minded. He gives us one vision. He gives us one soul. We're one army, moving in one direction, under one Lord. And His name is Jesus. That's why that word is so important. In chapter 2, verse 1, we find them waiting uh, in the Spirit for the fulfillment of God's promise. A lot to this, but watch. Verse 2, and suddenly, suddenly, there came a sound from heaven. Hallelujah. Wouldn't you like to hear that? Oh, beloved, I'm telling you, many of us study the Bible for years and we say, well, that's a one-time event. You know, that kind of revival is a one-time thing. It can't happen again. And I think we're saying, Lord, I believe you, but then I don't believe you. Lord, I believe you, but let somebody else ride in the wheelbarrow. Lord, I believe you. But let me hang on to my root. Lord, I believe you, but in essence we're saying we really don't. We believe it's going to rain, but we don't plant the seed. The, children, the, the people in this verse, in this context, they are, they are preparing the sails of the ship. They are preparing for the mighty winds of heaven to blow. What are they doing? They're humbling themselves before the Lord. They're praying. That's what they're doing. They're praying to the Lord. Lord, save us or we perish. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, our nation tonight, uh, the the, the solution, the remedy for our nation is not the Republican Party. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's not. It's not even the Tea Party. It's not the Constitutional Party, if you think I'm advocating for those things. Uh, I'm I'm going to tell you the hope for our nation is not in any political party. The hope for our nation is in revival of God's people. But it's going to take homo It's going to take unity of purpose, unity of heart. We're going to have to learn to forgive. We're going to have to do that. We're going to have to do that. We're going to have to learn, Ephesians 4, 32, what it really means to forgive one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. We're going to have to learn that. We're going to have to keep the commandments. And they're not grievous. They bring joy. They bring joy. Here they are. They're waiting. They're in one place, with one mind, with one accord. And suddenly, I love that, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house. (laughs) It filled all the house where they were sitting. Was it important for them to be there that day? What would they have missed had they not been there? They would have missed one of the greatest revivals of all recorded history. You see, because on this particular time, according to God's ordained, uh, God's, pre-planned, pre-purposed manner, God was going to manifest Himself in a mighty and glorious way unto His church. And He was going to impart to them that power that they stood in need of to do the work that He called them to do. It is very reminiscent to my mind of what God did in Exodus chapter 48 when they completed the tabernacle. Do you remember this? Moses and Aaron and all of the priests, they were uh, in the tabernacle, and they got down on their hands and knees before God because His presence, His Shekinah glory came down and filled the whole tabernacle. No man could stand in His presence. You know why? Because revival is not about the glory of man. Revival is about the glory of God. The Shekinah, the flame of God, came down upon that tabernacle. It was awesome. And all the people began to shout praises unto Jehovah God. I find the same thing happened in First Kings chapter 8, when Solomon, uh, in the days of Solomon, when they completed the temple. Do you remember the story? Solomon gets up and he lifts up his hands before the Lord, and he prays over the people, and, and God responds to that prayer. God responds to that beseeching of His communion his his name that it might be placed in the house that was built there and the glory of the Lord came and filled that house and then here we are in Acts chapter 2 and it's in the church the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and the glory of the Lord came and filled that place with his glory his praise his virtue his characteristics his power his empowerment and I want to I want to close. I've, I've I've got to skip down to the last part of chapter two for time's sake tonight. I'm out of time. Bear with me just a few more minutes. Drop down to verse uh, forty one and forty two of chapter two. I want you to see what the Spirit of God will produce in revival. Here it is. Then they that were that they that gladly received His word were baptized. And the same day, there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. You know, one day they had 120 members. Now they've got 3,120. Isn't that awesome? And they, watch this, watch it. And they continued. They continued steadfastly in four things. The apostles' doctrine. In other words, they continued in what the apostles taught. And fellowship, koinonia. They were partners together. They, you know, it wasn't a situation where there was a dictator in the church. It wasn't a it wasn't a tyrant, you know. Sometimes a pastor becomes a tyrant, and he doesn't even mean to be. He thinks that being a leader means forcing people to do things even against their will. But that's not leadership. That's not what the apostles teach us. Fellowship means that we're all equal. We have equal footing before God. It's not a big me and a little you. It's not I'm so important but you're not important type of ideology. They had true fellowship one with another, and that's a gift of revival. Then then listen to this. Uh, not only fellowship, but the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread, I, I believe that this is referring to the communion table. They were breaking the bread. They were remembering the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't once a year. It wasn't once a month. It was daily. In time of revival, you're going to see things like that. And then in prayers. Huh. Right up there, among all of these other wonderful things, you've got the prayer altar. Why? Because that's where you and I can hear from God the most. That's where we communicate, not only us communicating with Him. Somebody says, well, I thought you believed in the sovereignty of God, and you're saying that prayer can change God. I did not say that. I did not say that your prayers are going to change God tonight. But I'll tell you what it can change. It can change the way you view God. It'll change your thought process. Because what you're doing, you're communicating with Him. And guess what? He's communicating with you. And He speaks to us. I believe when we prayerfully come to the Word of God, He speaks to us through His Word. He gives us the answer. And the answer for the survival of the church in America, the answer for the survival of America itself, is when God's people pray and ask God for revival. Let's pray together, please. Heavenly Father, thank you for this study tonight, and thank you for the time that we've had together. I thank you for these dear, dear, dear brothers and sisters, the young and the old alike. I I thank you for their attentiveness. I I thank you for their joy in the Lord. I thank you for the resonation of these teachings that has found lodging within our hearts. And Lord, I'm going to ask you individually that you would begin your reviving work in me. That you would begin your reviving work in every heart, every uh, hungry heart that is here tonight. And Lord, that you might satisfy that need and remind us of our place in Christ. Remind us of how much we need you and your power to accomplish the work that you have called us to do. And it's not about us, but it's about Jesus and it's about his deserved glory because he is our worthy master and Lord. And it's in His precious name that we pray tonight and say, Amen.